There are many significant events recorded in the New Testament. If you were to read from Matthew through Revelation, you could put a whole list of them together, important things that happen. But undoubtedly, the most significant event recorded in the New Testament is Jesus' death and his resurrection, that event at the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry here. In fact, the very short portion of Scripture that precedes the event of his death, burial, and resurrection in the New Testament is the setup. It's Jesus' coming into this world. It's his life, his perfect life, and his teaching that are all pointing towards, leading up to the fact that he will die. In fact, he says, this is the reason that I have come. The rest of the New Testament points back time and time again to what it is that Jesus did on the cross. If you were to look into the Old Testament and ask the same question, look at all the events of the Old Testament. There are many and they're profound. But just ask, what is the most significant event of the Old Testament? What is the one that continues to be pointed forward to and back to all throughout the points of history? I think it would not be difficult to prove that the biggest and most significant event of the Old Testament is the Exodus. That time period in which God redeems his people out of Egypt in the days of Moses. In fact, much like in the New Testament, there's a small portion of teaching that comes before the Exodus. There's one book that precedes it, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And those events are quickly laid out to set up what's going to happen in Egypt. It's pretty clear as you read through the Bible, that's what goes down. Throughout the rest of Old Testament history, over and over and over and over again, we see a pointing back to that generation who lived in the days of God's redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're being given the law. And finally, their entrance into the promised land. D.A. Carson, a famous scholar and modern New Testament theologian and Old Testament, writes this about this account. He says, the Exodus is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. Now, the event of the Exodus finds its pinnacle at the Passover, which is what we're going to cover today. It's what kind of spurs on the actual leaving of Israel out into the wilderness. Now, providentially, this very day today is the day that Christians in the Eastern tradition celebrate Easter. Today is Easter for Eastern Orthodox Christians and those who follow a similar calendar, the Julian calendar, coming back from that time. Easter, of course, surrounds the time period where Jesus was put to death on the cross. And he was put to death on the cross during the Passover feast. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd go ahead and ask you to turn there. I'm going to read through the same paragraph we've covered for the past, uh, I think, think, three or four weeks now. We've walked through this paragraph. It's the period of time where the Hebrews author tells us about Moses and his life. And he points to the faith of Moses and the faith of his parents. I'm going to read this section one more time. I'd ask you to follow along. And we're going to conclude by just covering the final verse there, verse 28. That's all we're really going to cover today. But as in previous weeks, in order to make the greatest sense we can about what's being pointed to there, we're going to go into the Old Testament and we're going to cover the portion of Exodus that talks about that particular event so that we can be spun up 
to where the Hebrew readers were spun up to and their thinking as he, he shares this with them. So Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read 23 through 28, and then we're going to pray and then go back uh, through the text. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage this morning, I know that the hearts of those who are hearing this are in a variety of different places. There are some who are perhaps not believers. They don't have saving faith in Jesus. They've not yet repented of their sins and turned in faith to him. Lord, I pray that as we read through this text that challenges us to have faith like Moses and the people in that day had faith, I pray that they would be challenged likewise to believe, to have faith in you, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, for those who are believers today, we need a continual, constant stirring up by way of reminder to be faithful, which is exactly what the author in Hebrews is doing, telling his faithful Hebrew audience to remain faithful, just as the saints of old were faithful. So Lord, I pray that that would be the result today. Not that there would be anything different than what your text says, but that this would be the big idea, that we would leave spurred on in our faithfulness, because you are faithful. We love you, Lord, and we ask for you to do that with this text this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen. I'm going to jump back into Exodus chapter 11 this morning, which tells us the story of the Hebrews 11:28 28 event. Tells us the story of that Passover that takes place. I'm going to read through a bit of chapter 11 and 12 in Exodus. We're going to go kind of quickly. Now, earlier on in my days here in Utah as a pastor at the Mission Church, uh, I preached through the entire book of Exodus. We've done this before. We've walked very slowly through each of those passages. Today we're going to go a lot quicker to try to get the big summary of what's happening in our Hebrews 11 passage today. But I, I implore you to go back in this text, spend more time over it, let it wash over you. Uh, it'll be for the good of your family and for your soul. But I'm going to start in he- Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. This passage comes right after God has already sent Moses into Egypt to cry out to Pharaoh, let my people go, to let the people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. He's already brought nine plagues, mighty works and wonders against the Egyptian people so that Pharaoh would release them out into the wilderness, that God would redeem them. And this is what happens as God introduces through Moses the tenth plague that's about to come. I'm going to put this portion up on the screen so you guys can follow along. Exodus 11, verses 4 through 7. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. 
but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I just want to make two observations here before we jump into chapter 11. First, God says that he will come down. He says, I will come. Go back to that part, the very beginning of this, this verse here again. Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. I will go out. Well, this is significant because if you had read through the previous nine of those plagues, you'll notice a handful of things. First of all, it seems like they're broken up into, into threes. The first set of three, second set of three, and a third set of three. And there's things that are unique to kind of compare between all of them. But, but for our point right now, what you'll notice if you read through those is God never before says, I will come. But he sends plagues on the people. He says, the frogs shall come upon you. He says, the, the Nile River shall turn to blood. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He sends out dust into the land that lands on people and it becomes boils. God says in chapter 9, I will cause heavy hail to fall. He says in chapter 10, I will bring locusts into your country. But the 10th plague alone is unique in this. He says, I will come. I am coming. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Moses is essentially saying here, God is coming and when he gets here it will not go well with those who are his enemies. It should remind us of, in the New Testament, very similarly, God had sent many judgments on the people, on the nations, over the course of history. He had sent many warnings and people to warn. And it wasn't until Jesus, God incarnate, came down to bring that judgment here on this earth and to rescue us from sin. Second observation, God will make a distinction between Egypt and his people. And that's what it said at the very end of this passage. Remember that? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So I'm coming, and I will kill all the firstborn except for Israel. Not even a dog will growl against them. And he's doing this, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's for a reason. This entire event, all ten of these plagues, had been a showdown between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. It's interesting if you study the Egyptian pantheon, the gods that they worship, they had Nile River gods. They had fly gods, frog gods, literally like the heads of a frog. They had, they had those gods that they would worship and ask for care of the livestock. God of the sun. And yet when our God shows up, he crushes, he pulverizes these false gods. Because those false gods can do nothing about his plague on the Nile. Those false gods can do nothing about him sending the frogs, him sending the flies and the gnats, him sending the boils, him bringing the darkness and the locusts and the livestock death. In all of those things, while the Egyptians are bowing and prostrating themselves before these idols, God is crushing in their minds these false gods. None of them can stand before him. And that was actually said later in the text We'll get to there that God is making a show against the false gods of Egypt. But in this showdown, he was not merely pulverizing these false gods, but he was rescuing his people out of Egypt. 
So he wasn't just showing up to say, I've heard you Egyptians have been mean. I'm going to show a display of power so you'll stop being mean to them. He goes to get his people out of the land. Throughout the story, we see God continually distinguishing his people from Egypt. At least four times, in four previous plagues, plagues, it's made very clear that the plague came upon the Egyptians, but not on the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived. The, the, the plague of the flies, the fourth plague, the livestock dying in chapter five, or in the fifth plague, rather. The hailstorms coming, the seventh plague. The ninth plague, darkness on the land. All these things happened in such a way that the Egyptians felt the wrath of God upon them, and when they peered over to Goshen, none of that was coming upon the land where God's people dwelled. Now, in our modern day especially, many people have tried to claim that those events being talked about there must have just been natural events that Moses claims are supernatural. Have you heard this view? There are even Christians today. Those, those who claim the name of Christ who look at this, well, that wasn't blood in the river. It was probably just clay washed down from rainstorms. Well, flies sometimes come out and onto people. Sometimes frogs, because they were fleeing the, the clay and the water came up. And sometimes there's solar eclipses, and that's why it's like darkness. Well, not only were these things foretold to the moment, but they happened in isolated places. The whole land is pulverized, except for the land of Goshen. Darkness everywhere, except for the land where God's people dwell. It is a clear and eminent sign that God is protecting and watching over his people supernatural events foretold and came to pass. Now these first nine plagues were just the setup to what God is saying is about to happen here. What he's about to do with Israel. He's coming to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt and that brings us to the Passover event because he's promised that he will protect his people. And how does he promise that they will avoid this judgment? I'm going to read for you from Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read a bunch of verses from here, from verses 3 all the way through verse 30, uh, some portions here, just to give you the, the event, the picture. Go back on your own this week. Read through all those things. Every word of Scripture matters. We never skip over flippantly. But I want you to see what's going on here so that you can be spun up with me and, and with the Hebrew audience. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this in Exodus 12, starting in verse 3. God speaking to Moses. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So what's going on so far? Each household is to select a lamb or a goat if they don't have a lamb available to them. It has to be blemish-free. must be a male about a year old. And they're to kill that lamb on the 14th day. They're to prep four days prior. They're to kill that lamb on that day. That's basically a sacrifice offered collectively by Israel all at the same time on that day. Why? Why are they to kill this animal? And that's what it says next in verses 7 through 10. Then they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So again, lots going on, and I think there's significance in all these pieces, but for sake of time this morning, he tells them to take some of the blood and to put it on the doorposts. Later, Moses will articulate that with the people. They, they grab a hyssop branches, and they kind of use that like a brush. And in, in Hebrews, even, even refers to it as sprinkling. So the point was, get the blood and put it on the doorposts. Later in, in, in the sacrificial system, there will be a sprinkling of blood on the people of God. Same kind of imagery taking place there. And that was the plan, that the households would be marked with people inside who are eating of that sacrifice. Continuing on, 11 through 13. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God here instructs how the people are to eat. Ready to go. You know those mornings when your family's getting ready to go on a vacation, you have to catch a flight, and you get up in the morning, you already have your bags packed, and kind of, you're trying to eat a quick-to-go type of meal. It's, it's that type of sentiment, isn't it? It's the be ready, shoes on, sandals on, belt fastened, staff in hand, all that you need to go. In fact, uh, what comes next, which I'm going to skip over for time here, is a portion of teaching about unleavened bread. Don't even take time to let your bread rise, like the dough rise. You just, just take unleavened bread, and that's what you're to use for the Passover feast. And they even had this whole ritual for, for days before to clean all of it out of your house. It was a great symbol of getting, getting the world, Egypt, getting wickedness out of, out of your life. Jesus will even draw upon that same kind of language. Paul will in the New Testament as well. But they're to eat it in haste. Because at about midnight, God says, I will come and I will pass over the houses where I see the blood on the doorposts. Now, I have to confess, uh, I had heard sermons on Passover. I had heard the gospel message preached hundreds of times by the time I was about 20, when was the first time it started making sense to me what Passover meant. I never quite, it never clicked for me. That Passover means Passover. That, that's what it is. So in case you were like me, I'm just making sure that's very clear. That's what Passover is. That God saw the blood on the post of the door, and he passed over the judgment that he was bringing on all of Egypt. That's what was taking place on that night. No plague will befall you. I will see the blood. And again, he uses I language. I will pass over. I will see the blood, and I will pass over the house. He will not permit the destroyer to destroy those there. So the distinction between Israel and Egypt previously mentioned is accomplished in this. God provides a way for his people to avoid the judgment that he's about to unleash on Egypt. 
Exodus 12 now tells us what actually happened on that night. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping to verse 29 through 30 right now, just, just for you who are following along. And go back to that passage and read it. Again, go back and check these things out. These are significant, but this is where it actually tells of the event taking place. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Sense the brokenness finally in the stubborn, hard-hearted Pharaoh. That event is what is being summarized by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11. Here's our verse for today. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I want to conclude our time today by making a few observations here and five points to be made from this verse with with the historical context, the story in mind. The first that should jump right out at us as New Testament believers is this. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says it like this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That again connects to the unleavened bread portion of Exodus 12. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed says it right there. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So not only there does Peter make the connection of calling Jesus a blemish-free, spot-free lamb sacrifice, but he actually refers to it as a redemption sacrifice, a ransom. He ransomed us by his precious, blemish-free blood. The whole story of the Exodus account and the Passover event points us to Jesus. I I share the gospel every time that I stand up on this stage. I I want for brothers and sisters in Christ to hear it on repeat, for your kids to hear it over and over and over and over again. And and if a a person who's not yet crossed the line of faith is here amongst us or will ever hear this, you'll hear the word of God and hear the gospel message that you are a sinner, that just as in the Old Testament, God's judgment comes upon those who have sinned against him. You and I stand before an all-righteous, all-holy God, And because we have sinned before him, we deserve his just judgment. That is death, separation from him for eternity in hell, as Jesus tells us. But God shows us, demonstrates his great love, in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And he took 
all of our sin on him on the cross, that the wrath of God that is due to us now aims at the cross instead of at us. And that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. When we turn from our sinful, worldly ways and we repent and say, I don't want that anymore, I want Jesus, we can have life eternal with him. If you've not turned to Christ and believed on him, you need to do that. I have people ask sometimes, Rich, what would you do if someone just walks up to you and says, I want to be saved, what must I do? What prayer would you pray? What statements would you make? What, what deeds must the person do? It's simple. If a person says, what must I do to be saved? I quote the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's how it happens. Believe. It's not by some special words. It's not by some special deed. Believe. That's how you get saved. If that's you today, you need to turn from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus. You need to know this gospel. That this son of God who died for our sins rose again, defeating death. And you and I may be raised again to new life in heaven with him. But did you notice that the sacrifice told about in Exodus is not a sin sacrifice? It is not an atonement sacrifice. You need your sins atoned for. You, you do. You need forgiveness for your sins. And that can only happen by Jesus bearing the penalty, the punishment for your sins on the cross. That is true. But the Passover sacrifice was not a sin sacrifice properly. Follow me where I'm, where I'm going here. This was prior to the sacrificial system being established. It wouldn't be established until chapters after this point. There wasn't a tabernacle, there wasn't a priesthood, there wasn't anything like that for the people. There, there wasn't a set kind of ritual system. This is the first uh, sacrifice system designed for the people, the first festival to be acknowledged by the people. And think about the things that made this different than the sin sacrifices later. This sacrifice, this killing of the lamb, was performed by the laity rather than by priests. They hadn't even been established yet. It was to be done by the family members in their homes rather than at a temple or a tabernacle. It was to be eaten by the people, not by the family of priests. And for the record, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, that, that one significant sacrifice in the year that would take away the unintentional sins of the people, that sacrifice was to be burned wholesale. No one eats that sacrifice. You burn it, and whatever's left, take it outside the camp and burn it there. That's how that sacrifice was supposed to work. But these people were supposed to eat this one they were to put blood on the doorposts rather than on a dedicated altar, like on the horns of the altar. That's where the blood was supposed to go in the sacrificial system. Here's the point. This was not properly a sin sacrifice. This was not God looking down on the Israelites and saying, because of your sin, I am now coming to kill the firstborn. Because again, only the firstborn would have died when certainly the second and third and fourth and fifthborn were also sinners. Something's going on here. This is a redemption sacrifice. This was offered to the Lord in exchange for the firstborn of Israel. God was purchasing his people. He was ransoming them from out of bondage, out of slavery. Hear me carefully. There are plenty of passages in the New Testament that tie Jesus up with the atonement sacrifice. He is our day of atonement sacrifice. Our propitiation. 
Sometimes modern Jewish apologists will even point this out to Christians. I don't know if you've ever heard them do this. They challenge the way that Christians seem to conflate the atonement sacrifice with our Passover sacrifice. Oh, you say that Jesus is your day of atonement sacrifice? Then why was he killed on Passover? Right? And the things they see attached to one and not to the other, they, they highlight for us. And they'll challenge. Have you ever seen a modern-day Jew this? A Jew do this little challenge. Well, which is he? Is he the Passover sacrifice or the day of atonement sacrifice? And the answer is both. Jesus is all sacrifice needed for our eternal life. He both is the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and he is the sacrifice that redeems us from this wicked world. He is both of those things. He fulfills the entire sacrificial system. He is our Passover lamb as well as the lamb of the atonement sacrifice. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 is one of the many places in the New Testament where it puts these pieces of language together. Listen to this. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It's been said many times before, and I've showed this recently even. There are two exodus in the exodus event. Two exodi in the exodus event. The first aims to get the people out of Egypt, and the second aims to get Egypt out of the people. These people first were delivered out of the wicked land of Egypt. But have you read the story? How great did it go once they left Egypt? They left all their, all their problems behind, right? No, they brought all of them with them. They went out into the wilderness. Egypt was gone. It was behind them. It was way back there. But what they had not realized is it had come with them in their wicked hearts. And they continued to, to, to bicker and moan and whine and complain in their hard-hearted ways. And they continued to want to go back to Egypt. God pointed this out so many times. The Old Testament constantly points back to the folly of that particular generation. These, these Israelites needed two things. They needed to be removed from Egypt and they needed Egypt to come out of them. Brothers and sisters, you and I need the same. We need to be taken out of this world in the spiritual sense. We need to be not of this world, not of this world, redeemed from the wickedness of this world, and our sins forgiven. You and I are not merely a product of our environment. My wife and I made the choice to homeschool our kids. They've never been in a public school ever. And guess what? They still sin. Do you know why? Because their teacher's a sinner. And they are sinners. And no matter how far... We, we, we take them, they're always going to be sinners. You, you get what I'm saying? Have you ever experienced with a new believer, somebody who comes to saving faith in Jesus, and it's, it's, it's like they've seen color for the first time in their life, and they're excited, and they're exuberant, and they, the Bible's coming alive to them, and, and they're just like riding this wave, and somewhere around six months, a year in, all of a sudden, the realization that their sins followed them out comes to happen. You know what I'm talking about? This is super common for believers. We finally realize, oh man, I may have left those sinful ways, but those sinful ways are still in me. I'm going to battle those out day after day as a war. And that's what happened with the people back in that day as well. You and I acknowledge Jesus as our Passover lamb, as our, as our atonement sacrifice and as what was the purchase price to get us out of the sinfulness of the world. That's our second point tonight. First was, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Second, we must live as a purchased people. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought. You don't, you don't belong to you. You didn't buy you. Think of that. Have you noticed the madness of the world? What makes you and I different? If we're believers, what makes us different than the world? It's because we just figured out the secret code? It's because we have some special knowledge nobody else has? Is it because we are just more holy or righteous than everybody else, and so therefore we found the way out on our own good merit? No. We have been redeemed. We've been purchased out of that bondage. This should help us to remain humble in our salvation. Lord, thank you. Thank you. It's not because of good in me. It's because of you and your grace and your mercy that I've been redeemed out of this. I'm not in Egypt anymore because you acted. You did something. That's why I'm not there anymore. It should give us compassion on those who are still in that state. Lord, save them. Get them out of bondage. Purchase them out of there. Paul immediately follows up that awesome bought language. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Listen to what he says next. So glorify God in your body. He's talking specifically there about sexual immorality. What's the prime reason we ought not commit sexual immorality? Because our bodies that we would commit that with don't belong to us. It's not mine. It's his. I don't have the authority to go, I'm going to do whatever I want with this. It's not mine. It belongs to him. You and I do not belong to ourselves. We belong to a much more benevolent and perfect master than you and I could ever be for ourselves. We submit to the one who is our true master. Shortly after the story in Exodus 12, we'll get to Exodus 20, when the people come through the Red Sea and they, they, they make their way all the way out of the land and God gives them water and food and protection from enemies and they get to Mount Sinai and God delivers the Ten Commandments to the people. And it's the spoken portion. The people hear God speaking these Ten Commandments, and it's such a mighty roar that they literally cower and say, that's it, we can't hear you anymore. Give us a mediator. You speak to Moses on our behalf because we can't hear your holy voice any longer. But these ten words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments spoken, have an introduction. And do you know what God says in the introduction to that in Exodus 20? I'll read for you verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And on that basis, he gives us the Ten Commandments. This is fascinating. God could have appealed to his people by saying, I'm the creator. You have breath because of me. Therefore, obey these Ten Commandments. God could have said, I made everything that's around you. Treat it like I say. God could have just only appealed to his character. This is all, this, all this is true. I am holy and mighty and deserving of all worship. Therefore, do it. But what he appeals to is, I bought you. You're mine. I purchased you out. That's, that was his appeal to begin these Ten Commandments. We are to obey him as our master with both gratitude and duty. Gratitude and duty. It's very simple. He gets to make the rules, and we must obey. If you've ever had a worldly person in your life demand an answer to, why do Christians believe homosexuality is a sin? Why do Christians think that abortion is murder? Why do Christians think that transgenderism is a perversion? Or that people who hate God until they die will go to hell? Our answer is simple. Because he made the rules. 
I don't have to convince you in any other way. He said so. That's why. That's good enough. It's amazing how this works. Romans 6, 19 through 22. Check out the way that Paul writes about the same idea in the New Testament. It's hard to not imagine that he has in mind some of these, these uh, Israelites who had been in actual bondage and slavery. This is what he says in Romans 6, 19 through 22. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul does not go, aha, you used to be in bondage, now you're free from all bondage. He actually says, there's been a trade. You once were in bondage to sin, you are now in bondage to righteousness. In other words, we don't now belong to ourselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, that would not be good. We now belong to a perfect and benevolent master. It goes on in verse 22 to say this, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The very next verse is, for the wages of sin is death. Right? So the wage that the slave master sin pays its slave is death. We get death. We're slaves here. But when we are slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness, we get eternal life. Sanctification now, growth to become more like him, him working on us in love, and in the end, eternal life. You are not your own. We are to obey him as our master with gratitude and duty. I, I need, just, just to make, make this clear, I've heard many people say things like, attitude's very important, very true. Your heart really does matter. I'm definitely in agreement with that. But some will say that that emphasis is so great that if you can't get your heart there, there's no reason doing the good thing. If there's a kid standing at the, the checkout counter uh, of, of a local 7-Eleven and the teller's not watching, and he wants to steal the candy bar, and he knows he can get away with it, but the only reason he doesn't do it is because if he is found out by his parents, he'll get in trouble. Should you say, well, you want to, you might as well already steal it. No! Knowing that it was wrong, even if your heart's not all the way there, that's good enough. In other words, sometimes duty will do. Of course we aim for the heart. But if you think that your heart will be pure in all of your endeavors moving forward, you're kidding yourself. And in those moments, you might need to be reminded, I'm a slave of my master. I can't do this because he will know he said so. And even if I kind of disagree right now and I want to do it anyway, I will not because of him. He gets to make the rules. This is why you and I don't need to understand at the nth degree all the commands of God before we can obey it. Well, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. Don't do it out of obligation to our God. And sometimes God will use that and work that over time for your heart to be sanctified so that you don't want to do that anymore. Both of those things as those who are redeemed and purchased people Next point, God makes a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. Brothers and sisters, you know the whole Bible talks like this and the New Testament compounds this. There are children of God and not children of God. There are sheep of God and those who are not his sheep. 
There are sons of God and there are sons of the devil. This is the way the New Testament talks over and over. Jesus talks this way. And it is a blessed thing to be counted among the people of God. This is the kind of promises we get. We get the Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. For whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. It continues, Romans 8, 28, one of the other beautiful ones. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We can't say this about every person. Brothers and sisters, your sin, my sin, even today, God can use and does use even that to produce good. <laughs> Not for everyone, but for those who are called according to his purposes. The wonder in all of this, though, is that God takes those who are not his people, they're not his people, and he makes them his people. So you don't just take a blood test and go, ah, goes back to Abraham, boom, I'm his people. No, nope, over and over and over. Just because you are sons of Abraham does not make you a son of God. You're not true Israel just because you can trace your line back to Abraham. But it is by faith. First Peter 2.10 says this, this is Peter writing about believers in his day. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Romans 5.10 says it like this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is why we use this language. There's no conscientious objectors in this great war. This is why we say words like enemy. God haters. This, this is, this is the, the reality for us before we were saved. We're not trying to use hyperbole. This is not just an, an attempt for us to sensationalize and embellish to make the, the case. This is a Bible language. We were enemies of God before we were saved. And we've been redeemed out of our fallen state. Have you ever thought about the Egyptians in the day of the Exodus? The Egyptians, if you, if you lived there, let's say you were just transported back and you, you lived in Egypt. You just find yourself, boom, I'm in Egypt. I'm looking over, there's Goshen, darkness, uh-oh, ninth plague. Oh, oh, another one's coming. Here, stop to think. The Egyptians could have avoided the wrath of God. How? Move to Goshen. Become one of the people of God. Climb in that window where there's blood that no one comes into the house. It doesn't say that the destroyer will come and he'll know who is inside the house who should be killed and who, sh who shouldn't be killed. No, 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 no. That household is now protected by that. If you were a believer, if you had faith that God's going to do this, he's going to destroy the firstborn of all of Egypt, what was necessary to avoid that? Blood on the doorpost. Redemptive sacrifice. That's what was needed. In fact, over and over again, God doesn't say, no matter what happens in Egypt, I'm going to bring all this stuff. Over and over again, he says, let my people go, or I will bring the next plague. And God does do all things for his purposes. In the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, so that he would show and display his great and mighty powers. But the people of Egypt, some of them, the Bible even says, leave with the Israelites. They go with them. It, it doesn't say that anyone snuck into one of those homes or said, let me in, let me in. But we know that some of those Egyptians followed the Israelites out to become one of the people of God. God's judgment was avoidable 
as it is today. If you want to avoid God's permanent, eternal judgment, repent and turn in faith to Jesus. That's what you do. And you too will be saved. The events of the Exodus played out on a colossal theater so that you and I, a hundred generations later, would see what happened and know that he is the Lord, the Lord of wrath and of rescue. That's point four. He will come again for wrath and rescue. Just like back then, he will come again for wrath and for rescue. And I am well aware that there's different viewpoints on what the end times will look like in this age, whether there'll be lots more Christians or lots more uh, reprobates, those who don't love God. I know there's questions about that. But all the views expect some measure of wrath and of rescue taking place at the end of this age. And the big question is, who gets which? Those who have the blood of Jesus counted for us, who've been redeemed by his sacrifice. The blood is on the doorpost. We will not be judged in the last day. But those who do not have the blood of Jesus counted for them will suffer the wrath of God against them eternally. So how can you be counted amongst the first? Those who get the blood of Jesus counted on our behalf? By faith. That's why this verse is here. You notice that as the author of Hebrews writes this, he's not saying, go do some mighty work that Moses did and you too will be worthy. The thing that Moses did was done by faith. Look, faithless deeds do not save. Faithless activity does not benefit the person in the final analysis. There are many people who can say a verse who can claim to love Jesus, who can pray a prayer out loud, come forward at an altar call, get in the waters of baptism, join small group Bible studies and all these kinds of things. There's people who can do that. And in the end, Jesus will say, away from me. I never knew you. But it is by faith that Moses did these things. Why didn't God just pass over the homes of his own people or over the land of Goshen entirely? It's not like he couldn't know which of the homes was occupied by his people. There were even qualifications for the blood, right? So, so the sentiment is, uh, it's not that the, the, the Lord comes and the destroyer is preparing to kill and he checks the blood and goes, that's not lamb's blood. Or that's from a two-year-old goat. Admittedly, the language isn't saying this here, but I don't think that's the sentiment to convey that there's a testing like that. Yet somehow... God was able to distinguish between the blemish-free lamb's blood and cow blood or paint, red paint. He knew. So then why have them offer up the lamb at all? To show the people, this is it, to show the people that their salvation could only come through faith. Faith. Moses kept the Passover as an act of faith. All of this list is people being commended for their faith, that we might have faith likewise. When you tell someone to slaughter a lamb, to put the blood on your doorpost, and don't worry about needing to wash it off, you will never need to wash it off because you're going to be gone. 400 years in slavery, and you're gone tomorrow. Leave it a mess. The Egyptians will be scrubbing your doorposts because you'll be out free. They tell you to do this and to, to eat your food fast and, and, and to be prepared by midnight. No one goes to sleep that night. They're waiting because they know the Lord is coming at midnight. 
And they know they're going to leave and plunder the Egyptians as they go. Literally, the Egyptians like give them money and all kinds of things as they leave. Get up, go, just go. If you're told to do that and you do it, you need to believe something in order to do that kind of thing. This was an act of faith. The whole of the Christian life is to be lived through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, these saints of old, and Moses specifically here, kept the Passover because God said so. They didn't know how it was going to work out. They were fearful. It would say in the Exodus text, they were afraid. They'd have to get out of there quickly. They didn't know how it was supposed to work out. They didn't know about the dead end Red Sea. They didn't know he was going to part the, the, the waters. He didn't know... They didn't know how he was going to give them water in the wilderness and food where there was none around, protection from enemies. They didn't know any of that. But by faith, they operated in trust and they did what God said. For you, for me today, all that we do must be done as an act of faith. We are to live our lives as faithful believers, not because we can summon up such courage to do hard things, but because our God is faithful. That's the basis for our faith. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and preach that to those who do not yet have trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we ask for this kind of faith. We ask that you would help us to do what you're commending for us to do here in Hebrews 11. Father, help us to see that as we look back to Jesus as our redemptive sacrifice, our atonement sacrifice, that as we view that he has summarized all that was needed for our forgiveness of sins, for us to have peace, before you, I pray that we would soak that in, we would proclaim it to others, that Lord, we would, besides the data points, even when things don't seem to make sense, even though we can't see the future of what's going to happen next, that we will trust that you are in control and we will be a kind of people who operate in faith because you are faithful. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name, amen.